The Parsha today that we're studying is known as Vayera and is found uh, in Bereshis chapter 18 and we read through chapter 22. And um, it is an amazingly full portion to, to try to tackle in terms of what we're used to. So let's embark upon this. Let's try to go quickly through it. We're going to touch here and there on ideas. Uh, really, this is an amazing, amazing thing that we have before us. Uh, we already read it. We're going to start our study now. You know, there is said to be a link between last week's Parsha and this one in terms of a cause and an effect. And what I'd like you to do is just turn one page back and you're going to see the very last event in last week's Parsha, which is Avraham's obedience to God in the separation of he, his family, him, his family, and his household from the world around. You know, I'm amazed sometimes at how even today there is such a distinction. There is an association of heathenness with uncircumcision. I'm not suggesting that people need to be circumcised in order for them to relate to God in the way he would like them to today. I'm not going there right now. That whole topic is huge. But the rabbis say there is no accident that following obedience to Hashem and circumcising himself, his son Ishmael, all of his household, all the males in his house. Look at the last verse. And all the people of his household, born in his household, and purchased for money from a stranger, were circumcised with him, period. Next words, Hashem appeared. I, I say this is to be known as a cause and an effect because in one sense there must be a different way of relating to our flesh in order for us to truly see God. You see, if you and I are going to be people whose focus is primarily physical, then you would be like the rest of the world who says, you know what, if I can't see it, feel it, taste it, smell it, touch it, then I don't believe it's true. The idea that a person must have a physical way of relating to the universe around about them is too familiar to us. Those people who lack faith, those who say, I will not believe it, are oftentimes those who are so stuck in the physical world that they, it's just, there is a doggedness. You know, and the interesting thing is you can take someone who is well-schooled and you can take someone who was very um, systematic in terms of their education and those who have gone far, far more than others, and you can say to them, can you prove to me that it would be impossible for a spiritual world to coexist, overlapping or overlaid on top of the physical world and two areas that coincide or intersect each other. Can you prove it's impossible? And you'll find most people will tell you, no, I can't prove it's not possible, but you can't prove it is. And that's the point. 
We're not trying to prove because that really is the essence of faith. Faith is taking something at face value and believing it without the empirical evidence to back it up. I'm not suggesting that God wants people to operate blindly and take some earthly leader's words as saying, this is what God says and you just have to believe it and don't question it because if you question it, somehow you're displeasing to God. No. But faith is the idea of believing Scripture, frankly. The record that exists, it's the oldest record there is. It's the only record that seeks to understand the origins of the universe. It's the only record which talks about the way of reconciliation for man to be reconciled to his creator. Faith. Some would say that faith then is opposed to the physical realm and that the physical realm is opposed to the spiritual or faith. I don't believe so. I believe they can coexist harmoniously. Why am I saying this? Because in one sense, for us to really be able to see God, as it says here in the very first verse of our Parsha, in a sense we have to have a carving away of fleshly ideas from our belief system. You know, Rabbi Shaul in the Second Temple period, student of Gamliel, he says what? He says you need to pursue those things which are spiritual and avoid those things which are fleshly. He speaks of the dichotomy within each person. That one is being pulled, the rabbis would call it the, the evil inclination. And to pursue that which is spiritual, which is to follow the good inclination. And I understand that. But how are we to even have an understanding that spiritual things are true unless God first gives us the ability to see with spiritual eyes. If you were to take someone who was blind and they were born blind and you were to embark upon a task which some have tried, I must tell you, and that is to explain color to a blind person, it is extremely difficult. The best that can be done is to make parallels with some of the things that they do have receptors for their hearing and their physical touch and taste. So sometimes a person might try to explain the color red, for example, by giving them something spicy and say this is somehow going to teach you what red looks like. And they might say, well, I think I grasp maybe some of that. And perhaps you could say red is like this and then giving them some kind of a sound which would be perhaps caustic or abrasive or somehow and they say the contrast between this sound and something which is very mellow and lovely which might represent say blue or green and they might try to draw parallels in their own minds and perhaps then you might say red is like this and give them a a very 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 hot thing to just touch for a moment just enough to give them an, uh, to, uh, to give their pain receptors a, the, the message that they shouldn't touch this for very long and they might say, this is what red is like. What is blue like? Well, here's an ice cube to hold. And there's lots of people will try to give parallels to things, but they can't. Even though you could maybe give them parallels to things that they can perceive in their hearing, in their taste, or in their 
tactile receptors in their hands or other parts of their body, you can say, this is the way they'll still never truly be able to grasp. You know the only way they're going to grasp color? Is if God should supernaturally cause them to see. And it's only when they're able to actually see through eyes that have been rejuvenated or have been transformed that they will truly understand the essence of color. Now, the same thing exists in the spiritual world. We could say to people, listen, there is a spiritual world and they'll say nonsense. It makes no sense. Why? Because I can't perceive it. I remember someone very dear to me saying that they, used, they were given, when they went to school, they were given one of these little Gideon Bibles. Some of you may have had a, a similar experience when you were younger. Imagine the school having someone come in and giving Bibles out to all their kids. Amazing, huh? Yes, I, it was done in my day. It was done in perhaps some of the people here who are older. I, I bet you that some of the younger people, they never did that. But they did when we were kids. They gave out Bibles in school. The teachers allowed someone to come in and give you a Bible. Amazing. Anyway, this person was saying that as they read, they began opening up and began reading and it made no sense. Didn't have any clue about what it meant. Would read it. Couldn't grasp it. Said there was no way. The words they weren't a dummy. They could read. They could see the words. They could read a sentence, but they had no understanding, none of the meaning. Nothing made sense. It was almost as if it was there to read, but an unknown language. And when this person appealed to God and said, God, I want you to take control of my life. I want for you to be the one who transforms me. I surrender my life to you. I believe in your restoration, your reconciliation, your promise to me. I trust in it for salvation. I trust in your Yeshua. It was only when that concept was voiced and when it was believed, suddenly they said to me, my eyes were opened and I read the same words and they all now made sense to me. It was almost as if installed into my mind was an instant translator of all that I'd seen. And I looked at those same words and said, how could I have not understood them before? Because they make perfect sense. They're not hard words, nor are the concepts difficult. But before I had my spiritual eyes opened, I could not grasp what these words meant, though I wished to with all my heart. Now that is something which we can only describe as a supernatural revelation rather than something which was figuring it out. Having someone sit and explain it logically, using cause-effect thought processes, grasping sentence structure and putting it to... No. It was simply and utterly a supernatural change. You might say it was this, it was a lifting of blindness which was there. Because to you and to me who may look at the text of the, of the scripture, the word of God, and who not, don't have a problem reading it, you may say, I don't get how somebody else can't see it. 
They have to be able to see it. How can they not see it? Remember something. Others have had and do continue to have supernatural blindness upon their eyes. You and I need to understand that our first response when we come across someone who does not see it is not to use logic and it is not to use the full force of our reason and theirs. It is not to try to get them to see it using your persuasive arguments, but rather... You and I need to understand something about this. God is needing to lift away blindness. And if we can pray that way, then, of course, God wants us to use logic and persuasive argument, etc. But not first. To someone who is unable to see, you must address the real problem first. I said an inability. I did not say a lack of explanation. Because if they have an inability to see it, you must pray that away. You must ask God to remove it and beg of Him to do so. Very important lesson for our times, as it was in this day. Why then am I saying that it was following the physical circumcision that Avraham was able to see and God appeared to him at that time here? Hashem appeared to him in the plains of Mamre. Hmm. The rabbis believe that it was the circumcision because it was obedience to God in spite of having a lack of what? An explanation. Do you realize that Hashem did not say to Avraham, I want you and your sons after you and all those in your household to get circumcised because here are all the great medical benefits. And here are all the wonderful things going to happen to you as a direct result of circumcision. He didn't do that. He just said... This is how you and I are going to be in covenant together. Here's a demonstration, a sign of that covenant. Do this. And Avraham did it. This, you might say, would be one of the very first chukim. A, a command given to someone without the benefit of all of the explanations associated with it. In other words, the act of obedience on Avraham's part was one of faith. Faith that Hashem knew, though he did not. And perhaps later on, as he continued to obey that through the generations that would come, as Abraham and his seed after him would obey, perhaps through that there would be more explanation given. Perhaps more understanding would come, which is exactly the way the rabbis believe that the chukim of God are uh, revelatory. Through obedience, long obedience, God may give us glimpses of why in the time to come, but not necessarily. He requires of us faith and faithful obedience without the benefit of an explanation. And that's really the essence of it. Hmm. What about today? I said earlier that I do not believe that God, for the sake of one's righteousness, is going to require them to have a bris. I'm not talking about the sons of Abraham. I'm not talking about the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you understand, because this is a lifelong generational covenant which is to be ours forever, and it needs to happen because God said so. But what about those who are not born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What about those who have come as a direct result of, we can say, grafting in? Well, this has been addressed, you understand. 
It's been addressed more than once, and it's been addressed in generations prior to our own, quite thoroughly, I might add. If you were to go back in time to the second temple period, you would see that the question of circumcision was very much a part of everybody's thinking when it came to the goyim who wanted to relate to the God of Israel. And you may recall, as we have done studies in previous years on the life and times of Shaul, the rabbi taught by Gamliel, Gamliel the Elder. Okay? So, what do we have? We have the understanding in that time frame that if a non-Jewish person wanted to come to the God of Israel, he had to go through a two-step process. Well, the two steps were overt, rather. There were other processes involved in it. They were, of course, internal. They had to do with one's attitudes and obedience and the way he believed. But the two-step process that one was supposed to observe if he was going to come to the God of Israel was, first, they believed circumcision was essential. Why? Because then you were entering into covenant with God as Avraham Arvinu had done, our father Abraham. The second process they believed was essential for one to come to the God of Israel was that of the mikveh, going and becoming immersed. And when one was immersed in the mikveh, then one would be declared. Having this first step done first, the circumcision, then the mikveh, one was declared part of the Jewish people and subject to all of the laws of Torah. And therefore, they were to be considered completely and utterly a Jewish person by conversion. That was it. Those people were referred to, by the way, affectionately, and even today are still referred, referred affectionately to them as the Ben of Rahum, the son of Abraham. Why is he called the son of Abraham? Because he is Abraham's seed, you might say. You know, it's interesting, though, because Avraham did receive covenantally promises from God which he never saw fulfilled. Did you know that? Did you notice that in our Parsha today, Avimelech, king of the Plishtim, and Fikol, his general, generously allow Avraham to sojourn wherever he wishes in their land? Did you notice that? Wherever you see, magnanimously, he says, you go ahead and sojourn. And later on, as they're talking about the well, and they're talking about the covenant between them, and Beersheba, and the, all of that went down there, he, just, he even refers to Avraham as being a sojourner in his land. Did you notice that? A couple of times that kind of thinking comes up in our Parsha today. I want you to understand something when I mention that. Do not for one moment believe that the people who are trying to lay claim to the land of Israel, who live within its borders, who are not born of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that is, people who today's society has labeled Palestinians, although there is absolutely no ethnic people by this name existing at all, there is no Palestinian country. There is no Palestinian ethnicity. It stems from no family, none. The idea is completely artificial, and indeed, where they live, I call occupied territory. I call them the occupied territories where they live. Not the way that the media today and most of the world would like to recognize, not the UN definition of occupied territories, but rather God's. 
I go back to the Bible and say, you know, the UN says this, CNN says this, Reuters and APP say this, and you know what? Time Warner says this. But I have a better idea. I go to the Bible and say, I believe the Bible instead of the popular news media. And the Bible has given this land forever to the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not Abraham, Ishmael, and company. Do you understand? And so I refer to the land in which many peoples are right now occupying that they like to call their own as occupied because they are occupying Israeli land. They're occupying Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their descendants' land. And until they recognize whose land it is, there will be conflict. Anyway, I digress perhaps a little too much there. I want us to go to the idea, however, that says Abraham received his land even though in his day he was never able to call it my land. His descendants were not able to call it their land until 400 years later. You understand 430 years we see the exodus from Egypt going back to the land and then, of course, there would be the the conquest of the land in a military sense because according to God, it was now time. Remember last week's Parsha? Remember that when Avrakam came and sojourned in this land, he was told to live here peaceably with the inhabitants for the time being because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. But by the time of the Exodus, the iniquity of the Amorites was full and it was time now for God to render judgment against them using his nation to do so. Again, what does it require of us? It requires us to believe what the Bible says. It is faith in this word and not in others. As we go on through our study, we're going to find out that many people have created variations of this word according to their own tastes. They wish to suit themselves, and therefore it's more comfortable for them to believe something that is not found herein. Hmm. Hashem appeared. He appeared to him after the circumcision. In one sense, you could say this regarding the people of God who come to him they need to come to him in the same way Avraham received his promises, that is, by faith. Someone comes to God who is not born of the house of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they say, you know, I understand God made a covenant with the Jewish people, and that covenant requires circumcision. But you have to understand the circumcision of the Jewish people, which is done the eighth day after birth, is not done because it's going to make them righteous. They're done because they're going to be obeying God in the way God said that the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all those who descended from them were going to relate to him, period. That's all. We are going to be then part of the Abrahamic covenant. And circumcision came before the Torah was given at Mount Sinai. I want you to be aware of that. Therefore, those who say the Torah at Mount Sinai, if they say that Torah has been done away with, I guess there's one thing still remaining, wouldn't it now? Rabbi Shaul refers to those who are Abraham's seed. Why? 
because he says they received the promises by faith. In the book of Galatians, you'll find references to Hagar. You'll find references to Isaac coming from Sarah and Ishmael coming from Hagar and a comparison being made between them. And we're going to get to that, God willing, a little later. But I must tell you that the idea of these two Our one came to be part of the covenant by illegal means, which had nothing to do with natural processes. Remember when Sarah said to her husband, I would like you to take Hagar, my maidservant, into your your bosom, because after all, she may build up my house. I may be built up through her. Sarah said, I may be built up through her. Why? Because, of course, the idea of adoption if, if Hagar giving birth sat upon Sarah's knees to do so, it was considered that the child would be Sarah's. It was as if she had carried it. It would be the first instance, we might say, in our modern understanding of things, of a surrogacy. A surrogate pregnancy. It would be as if Sarah had really provided the egg, although Hagar had carried it, fertilized through to fruition, and the baby would be Sarah's. As we know, there are difficulties that arose in that arrangement and the attitudes which accompanied it. And I must tell you that as we look at that idea, Ishmael became a bit of a problem, almost a supplanter, you might say, and one who saw himself as necessarily being the one who would be the preferred son. Hmm. So as you read Galatians, you may come to the understanding that indeed Ishmael was considered legally Avraham's son through Sarah, the natural wife, the free woman, legally her son. But that was only because of the law that existed, that he was able to be legally her son. But he was really, in truth, the son of the servant the bond slave. Remember the movie Ben-Hur? In Ben-Hur, you see someone that you just really come to love right away. And it's the servant of her. He, in a sense, recites his lineage right up front. He says, he and his fathers before him have been faithful stewards of the house of her. And he says this with reverence. He says it with joy. He says it with fervor and meaning. Why? Because to him there's no higher purpose in life than to serve faithfully the house of her. He even endures torture. This is no hireling. This is nobody who just was picked because he responded to the ad in the newspaper and he had all the great qualifications and the best schooling. He isn't the butler of the house of her, trained in the best of butler schools. This man is a bond servant. You know what that means? It means that he is the latest in a long line of people who have because they belong to her. This is not someone who works for six years and in the seventh goes out free. This is not someone who's going to be working off a debt. This is someone who came into possession because of being purchased or needed through captivity to have his life spared. And his life was spared. His life was given to him in order to serve. Rabbi Shaul refers to himself as a bond slave. 
in the same way. A bond slave of the master. Isn't that interesting? One who would be forever serving the master, he and his children after him. And you know what? To him, Rabbi Shaul, there would be no higher purpose, no greater honor, and nothing to speak of with more enthusiasm or reverence that you can imagine than that thing itself. What an idea to be a bond servant of the master. Faithfully serving as steward of the house. Do you desire that? Do you desire that extremely high, lowly role? Lowly role. I spoke of it in a very high, high way. Yes. Well, I mentioned him because this man had a daughter, and the daughter was also a bond slave. And as long as she was the son, or excuse me, the child of a bond slave, she would be a bond slave, unless, of course, something intervened and she was granted freedom. And if she was made a free person, then she had some choices she could make. And you may remember the romantic story in Ben-Hur, how he freed her, and then he asked her to be his wife. She could have said no. She was free. In fact, he gave her her freedom long before she became his wife. You may recall the story. But the point I'm trying to make is the bond slave, Hagar, was not given freedom. Nor was Ishmael, the son, given freedom except after he was 13 years old and he was sent away. The kind of freedom he had achieved was not one because he had pleased his master. The freedom he achieved was one because he was thrust out because of dissension and supplanting. One who would seek to supplant Isaac was thrust away and sent out. But because of God's promise of Rocham Avinu, he was going to be made a great nation and there was no question that that took place. Hmm. Galatians, I was referring to. What does it say? It goes on and talking about the son of the bond servant, the bond slave girl, versus the son of the free person. How was Ishmael considered Sarah's son? Through the legal technicality of the way the law was structured, he was considered her son. But in truth, Yitzchak the son of promise, the real son, was one that came naturally speaking. Isn't it interesting? And in Galatians, a comparison is made by those who would seek to see themselves as a son of righteousness, or rather one who is declared a son by faith, as such as the promise of Yitzchak came to, to Rocham and to Sarah, and they received it by faith, and he was a son born of faith, versus one that was engineered and worked hard to create this thing which was legally speaking, technically in, but was not natural. And in Galatians, we're given an idea that salvation is that which people receive by faith, and if they do so, then they are indeed the natural born son. They're the one that's come naturally speaking and has been come, come to 
to uh, God as faith acceptors. And then those who seek to engineer their salvation by means of this and of that, these people are seen to be people who don't possess salvation at all because they are seen as the son of the slave woman. Entering into relationship by means of engineering and working toward it. Hmm. Let's take a look at the narrative here and see what happens. We did speak last week at length about the fact that the deeds of the fathers, and may I even add these words this week, the deeds of the mothers, portent the deeds of the children. And perhaps we'll see something of that. We know that the one through whom redemption would come to the world of Rukham Avinu, that what he does and what he says are going to be many ways reflective of the work of the one who would reveal, who, who is going to be the revealed son. So of Rukham's deeds, a father is going to pretend that of the children or more specifically of the son of promise, of the one that God is going to use. I find it interesting that the idea of Hachnasas or Him is so strong within the understanding of what pleases God. You say, what's Hachnasas or Him? Well, it's a phrase. It is hospitality. You say hospitality, okay, being nice to strangers and helping them along their way and maybe giving of your time and your energies as they go. But you know what? The idea that God has in the Bible of Hachnasorskahim is very, very strong. He shows us something here. You and I would say hospitality is what? Inviting people over to your home, maybe, for a meal. That's hospitality. True. That's included. But there is in hospitality something that is so strongly that God says he has such an affinity toward that you and I had better sit up and take notice because there's an, all, there's an enormous world about hospitality you and I should learn about. First of all, look at Avraham's actions here in verse 2. He lifted his eyes and saw, behold, three men were standing over him. He perceived, so he ran toward them from the entrance of the tent and bowed toward the ground. First of all, as they approach him, as they're coming toward him, as, he's going, as they're coming down to see him, he does what? He sees them coming and he races to meet them. You say, that's interesting. Maybe it was customary in that day. Hmm, not universally, as we're going to see. He bows down to the ground and he says, My Lord, if I find favor in your eyes, pass not away from your servant. Let some water be brought and wash your feet and recline beneath the tree. I will fetch a morsel of bread so that you may sustain yourselves and then go on inasmuch as you have passed your servant's way. Because you've come my way, I have been meant to help you, to serve you, to be a place of hospitality for you. Because God has brought you my way. You have to understand something. Jewish thought makes it very plain that when God allows someone to be in your area of influence, you have a responsibility now. And your responsibility is to reach out to them using hachnasas orchim, hospitality. 
Let your let some water be brought and so on. Um, okay. Next part, he says, they said, do so just as you have said. So Rogham hastened to the tent. He raced there. He is running everywhere he's going here. Why? Because he wishes to serve these people. He says to Sarah, hurry three sows of meal, fine flour, knead and make cakes. He then runs to the cattle, takes a calf, tender, good, gives it to the youth who hurries to prepare it. He's taking cream, milk. He's placing everything before them. And he stood over them beneath the tree and they ate. Why is this important? Well, it's going to become the hallmark of those who God sees as having, for lack of a better term, a Jewish mentality. I see they use the term Jewish mentality because it so characterizes Jewish people if you have ever been within their homes. You may recall that when Yitzchak needs a wife and Eliezer, a Rocham servant, is sent to find one, he does not give Eliezer a questionnaire to ask the girl, what are your theological positions? What are your thoughts toward your, your family and the, the people from whom you've come? What are your thoughts toward the, the gods and the false gods around about? He never asks her theologically one single question. Do you know the only criteria that Eliezer asks Hashem to make this clear and Hashem brings to pass, the only criteria is let the right one be someone who not only will provide water for me, but will also offer to provide water for all of my camels. And this man brought a caravan with him. And camels drink a lot. And we're going to get to this in the, in the, in the, in the partial to come, but I'm, but I'm just trying to make, use this illustration, you understand. When this is the criteria used, and Avraham sends him off without words of warning and without more limiting criteria, and this is it, this is important. Hospitality. It's this is the thing. Now, Later we read about how Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. It speaks that God, the outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah had reached God's ears. Outcry. It means there were some people within Sodom and Gomorrah who were actually suffering. Suffering. Then later on you see conduct of people within Sodom and Gomorrah that is very, very wrong and wicked. And yet... We are not told what it was that made God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Most of the time, people who read this text who are not familiar with Hachnasas or Chim would say that the reason people were destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah was a direct result of their moral stance on relationships between men, women, men, men, etc., However, that is not what we find that the Bible says. Not here, not elsewhere. Do you know that Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned elsewhere? Yes, I don't mean here in the Torah. 
I'm talking about during the second temple period. There were places where Yeshua's Talmudim were going to teach. And it's interesting that in one particular location, they were rejected. They were not welcomed. They were, in fact, rebuffed and they were not treated with hospitality. And it is interesting that what was said of that place is this. It will be easier, it will be better in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than it is for this place because these people have rejected. They have not welcomed you in. Isn't it interesting that that is still the criteria which is being given? Hmm. Well, we could say that in Avraham, however, we see a picture of the Messiah. Why? Because Messiah welcomed all who came to him. And those aren't just words now that you're thinking along the lines of Hachnasas Orchim, the hospitality idea. He welcomed those who came to him. In fact, there were some who tried to come to him that other people felt were less important. Young, impoverished perhaps, sinners, and people tried to dissuade some from coming and he would say, no, let them come. Let them come. Because he welcomed all who came. Do you understand? Huh. What else did he do? Well, he's known, interestingly enough, for taking a bowl of water and washing people's feet. This happened in particular, it's mentioned specifically associated with the Seder, the, the Passover Seder that he, he held and hosted, you might say, the last one. But he washed feet. In one sense, it's exactly as his forefather had done of Racham Avinu. He causes water to be brought. These people, he has their feet washed. Let me read to you from Bereshis Rabbah here. This is from the Midrash. Rabbi Eliezer ben Chia said, For all that Arachim did to the ministering angels, the Holy One, blessed be he, repaid his children when they went out of Egypt and will give them the same in the future. You will find Arachim saying, Let now a little water be taken. And as a reward for this Holy One, the Holy One, blessed be he, repaid his children by assuring them, and I will take you unto me. The idea of being taken and taking you is the same. This, said Rabbi Yochanan, proves the statement regarding this world Whence can we infer that the text applies to the future? Because it says, and the people shall take them and bring them to their place. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 2. Speaking of the future yet. In connection with Avraham, it is written, a little water. And the Holy One, blessed be he, gave the water to his children when they went out of Egypt. As it says, and you shall smite the rock and there shall come out water out of it. Exodus 17. And how do we know that he will do the same thing in the, in the time to come? From, quote, for the Lord your God brings you into a good land, a land of brooks of water. Okay? So far we're all able to see this as a logical thing. And then the rabbis jump ahead to another time. And that the same will happen in the days of Messiah. From there shall be upon every lofty mountain and upon every high hill streams and water courses, Isaiah chapter 30 verse 25. And also, I will open rivers upon the high hills. Chapter 41, 18. 
We find Avraham saying, wash your feet. And the Holy One, blessed be he, requited his children for the act when they went out of Egypt. It says, then washed I you with water, Ezekiel 16:9. And in the land of Israel, as it says, wash you, make you clean, Isaiah 1:16. And how do we know the same of the future? From where it says, the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, in Isaiah 4:4. 4, 4. We find Avraham saying, and recline yourselves under the tree, which implies that he made a sukkah for them. The Holy One, blessed be he, therefore made Sukkot for his children when they went out of Egypt. As it said, I made the children of Israel to dwell in Sukkot, Leviticus 23:43. And in the land of Israel, as it says, who hast, who hast schacht my head in the days of battle? Psalm 140, verse 8. You say, what's schacht? Do you remember what a schacht is? We finished recently the holiday of Sukkot. And what is that which is overhead but is known as the schacht, Right? The schach. How do we know that Sukkot will be made for them in the Messianic era? And there shall be a sukkah for a shadow in the daytime. Isaiah chapter 4, verse 6. And yet this idea of the tree. I want to go back to the concept of the same washing of water. The feet of Avraham washing their feet is going to also be that which will take place in the days of Messiah according to the Midrash. What is it saying to us? Perhaps Messiah when he took the towel and took the water and he got down to do so, was making allusions, one of the last allusions to this very act that Avraham did in Hachnasas Orchim, his own guests, the hospitality. As they are there at the holiday of Pesach, he still washes their feet so that they would have one more thing to remember that he was the fulfillment of here, with the idea that the Midrash teaches us. The fulfillment of what they believed firmly, the tradition in that day, which was in the days of Messiah. So will it be the same way it was, it was in the days of Abraham. Okay? Hmm. Sarah laughed. You know, the difficult thing is, often we read the sages. The sages give us this idea that our forefathers were perfect. Never did anything wrong. There's indeed this idea, this concept of, you know, even though it may say Jacob deceived, well, he didn't, he was, you have to understand, it was really righteousness and it wasn't really deception and there's all kinds of ideas that we have to somehow make, a, make these things fit together because after all we know, Yaakov was Ishtam, he was an upright man. God said so. And if he was upright, then clearly he could not have been deceiving and therefore there was another purpose or a higher purpose or whatever you want to call it. Listen to what the Chofetz Chaim says here regarding this passage. When I studied the passage well, I was struck by great difficulties. We know that there is not one extra letter in Torah and that each letter has been invested with an awesome, inestimable sanctity by the giver of the Torah. Therefore, it seems astonishing that the Torah would relate this episode, which is so uncomplimentary to the righteous Sarah, in such great detail. I told myself that this passage must allude to something of major significance. And then Hashem enlightened me and I perceived the message of the episode. What is it? Well, you may recall that this was a long time coming. This particular promise took a long time to be fulfilled, right? After all, God promised Avraham much, much younger he would be the father of many nations. 
And he told them that it was going to be fulfilled even though he was young at the time and now he's become older. An old, old man. Imagine how this promise would have worn on him and on his wife through the years. The difficulty is going to be believing that it's ever going to come to pass, especially with the several of the physical human limitations upon Avrochel and Ansara. Hmm. The Chofetz Chaim then talks this way. He says, remember that many years later, though the people had been promised, when were they promised? God said to Avrochel, your descendants will go down to Egypt. They will serve, yet I will bring them out. And that promise existed and was understood generationally so that when the people were in Egypt, they would have known this promise. Yet, did they believe it when Moshe Rabbeinu came to them the first time? What does it say? In chapter 6, verse 9 of, of Shemos Exodus, it said, So Moshe spoke to the sons of Israel, but they would not listen to Moshe because of their despondency and their cruel bondage. This idea would have been very much like that in Sarah's thinking. Don't tease me. Don't make this so that I don't raise my hope. Who do you think you are? All the things you can think about going on in her mind. When you think about it, if you're being oppressed by time, by your own physical limitations, or if you're being oppressed with a whip, the promise may seem like a mockery to you. And therefore, you would not perhaps even have the ability to believe it any longer. Do you hear what I just said? The inability to believe. Blindness. Blindness would have fallen upon your eyes. Hmm. The Chofetz Chaim, of course, always anxious to make things relative to the reader, says, we can be like Sarah. Mashiach has been promised. We wait for his arrival. And yet, some of us have lost hope. We live in our diaspora. We live with limitations upon our actions. We are not given the freedom to be all that we can be. Why? Because Torah cannot be lived the way we want to live it. Listen to this. If one truly believes in the possibility of Mashiach's imminent arrival, then he will constantly be in a state of spiritual preparation through Torah, good deeds, and repentance. If, however, this is not the case, then it becomes apparent that our talk of his imminent arrival is mere lip service. In reality, our faith is quite minuscule. And this is alluded to in the words told to Sarah, No, you laughed indeed. You see, you and I, when faced with the reality, people saying to you, Do you really believe he's coming? Oh yes, we believe he's coming. Or well, are you preparing by living your life, by repenting every day? Remember the rabbis say, When should you repent? One day before you die. One day before you die, you should repent. Good. And since none of us knows when we're going to die, every day should be filled with repentance, right? So it should be said with regard to Mashiach. Good deeds, mitzvahs, repentance should characterize every day of our lives. Why? Because Mashiach may be coming at any moment. 
And if he's coming at any moment, do you want to be caught not expecting him? That's the question. No, indeed, you did laugh. Some of us would deny it. No, we believe. Only be faced with the words, no, you don't really believe. And who would it be able to tell us this? But only supernaturally God would be the only one who could tell you. Why? Because your life may be demonstrating that you believe. You may look like you're believing, but in your heart of hearts, you don't believe. Okay? Remember one thing, one thing that you can read in the Greek text. Shimon Kepha has this to say in his second letter. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Or ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Hmm. Well, it did happen, of course, we know this. Um, the prophecy given in verse uh, 14 is anything beyond Hashem. At the appointed time, I will return to you that this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Did you catch the word appointed time, the phrase in there, appointed time? This is literally a moed, which means that at a moed, perhaps one that you and I know and celebrate every year, this is when Mashiach would have been born. And we've already gone through that recently in our celebration of Sukkot. We've examined when we believe he was born and, and we've gone through that timetable and we've seen from a variety of sources where we can calculate backwards and calculate forwards and kind of come to the same date. And so we've done that already. I won't belabor it now, but I will say that the appointed time here is a significant one. The sages have a couple of times that they believe he may have been born. And I find it fascinating that you see such a division in their ranks. And yet even there it's cloudy. No one knows for certain the day of his appearing. They would say Mashiach is going to come at a certain time. Why? Because they look backwards at the forefathers and say, well, according to our fathers, so it may be. They would look, say, at Avraham Avinu and say, when was he born? They would look at Yitzchak and say, when was he born? They would look at Yaakov and say, when was he born? And they would say, Mashiach may come as well on the day they were born. And they would look perhaps even at Moshe Rabbeinu and say, when was he born? All the different aspects. Hmm. What appointed time is meant here? What was the, uh, the messenger here referring to when he said at the appointed time, you will give, uh, your, the, Sarah will give birth to a son at the appointed time this time next year? What was it? Well, some of the rabbis believe it was going to be on Passover he was born. And some believe it was at Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, we would say. Okay? And in fact... If you are to go to Rosh Hashanah services, I hope you do, you're going to know that the Torah reading for that day, Rosh Hashanah services, is of course the birth of Yitzchak. You read that on that day, okay? Regardless of that, the idea that she laughed about it initially is kind of interesting because later on, she laughs differently, doesn't she? 
It's a different kind of laughter. The first was a laughter of disbelief and doubt, perhaps because of the crushing oppression of time and the, the, the marching onward of the inexorable aging process that strikes all of us. Like it or not, it happens. But the second laughter is one of joy, and indeed one could contrast this. Hmm. Tzachach. Excuse me, tzachach. Laughter. There's a different kind of laughter that comes from Avraham's other son, the mockery. Remember the passage said he was mocking him? Hmm. Mutzachek, same root system. It is a laughing of mockery. Interesting. You know, there's a religion in this world you may have heard about. They just finished celebrating what they consider to be a holy month for them known as Ramadan. I bet you know what religion it is now. And in Ramadan, they celebrate something. They celebrate where Abraham takes his son and binds him and puts him upon the altar. And God takes that son off the altar and he say, well, that's the same way we believe. Eh, wrong son. Because in the month of Ramadan, they have actually a day they celebrate where they believe Ishmael was the son put upon the altar. Now, see, here's the problem with that thinking. First of all, it flies in the face of the earlier testimony of the Torah. Two, it changes the entire events which would then come afterwards. It would mean that Ishmael was the son of promise. It would mean Ishmael was the one through whom God was going to reach out to the world and save people. He would bring to life those who were dead through Ishmael. I find, interestingly enough, that the focus of people who are of that particular belief system is not the idea of saving, but rather of destroying. Their focus is, if you don't believe, we'll kill you, not believe any will come to life. Hmm. They believe that the later record, which came in the 600s of the common era, is the more accurate record, and they believe that Ishmael was the son bound, not Isaac. It would seem that 600 years after the common era begins, you have this idea of Ishmael supplanting Isaac, coming again to the forefront, bubbling, as it were, like a fomenting issue that refuses to go away. This concept of Ishmael is really the one. He supplants Isaac in position, in authority, in, in inheritance. Ishmael is the one who really then would be appropriating all these lands. And Ishmael will be the one through whom the Creator was really going to work, you see. And you say, these people are very, very sad. I want you to understand something. This is not limited to Islam. And it is not limited to the Muslims of the world and the Arab peoples. There's another complete religion which indeed speaks of supplanting Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, perhaps not Abraham, but they would say we're the seed of Abraham and therefore we are the real because we've come through faith and those who have not come through faith, those people have been supplanted by us. 
As a matter of fact, you know what's interesting to me about Islam when they say that we have the real record and the far older record which exists is somehow at fault and to blame and is wrong and has been corrupted? We have the real one. There are other groups as well that say the same thing. Today, if you were to look at Mormon doctrine, you would find that they believe they possess the real record. It was given to them through Joseph Smith in the early part of the last century. You must realize something about this. They claim the real record is only, what, 100 years old, 100 and something? I want to read to you something about one of the early church fathers known as Ignatius. He lived in 36 of the Common Era, lived until about 108 of the Common Era. And he wrote these words, listen to this. It is monstrous to talk of Jesus Christ and to practice Judaism. For Christianity did not base its faith on Judaism, but Judaism based its faith on Christianity. Did you, ha did you hear that? So already, a hundred years in the into the common era, just, in the, just after the first generation, you have people who are angry. You have people who are not willing to believe that what they have has come out of being grafted into this. In other words, what he's saying there, let me retranslate what he just said there. Romans 11 is wrong. It is from the Christian organism, the Christian olive tree, that Jews find their sustenance coming. They have been grafted into us, not us into them. Notice that he refers to a foundation upon which something is based, is built upon. He says Judaism is based, has built itself upon the foundation of Christianity. And you say, how can people have this idea? Don't they understand something about chronology, about history, about when things took place? You can say, you know, by the time that Ignatius came along, Already for 1,500 years, Judaism had, had existed. The Torah was the means by which we understood who God was, who we were, how we related to him, and how we related to the Goyim like Ignatius. And Ignatius has a better idea, you understand. His idea was that, no, we have the real thing, and somehow all of the facts about Judaism are unimportant. They actually have come out of us, not we out of them. It's interesting that Ignatius was a Roman, and the Romans are likened by the rabbis to the person of Edom, Edom. Now, why are they likened this way? Because indeed, there's ample evidence to suggest that Rome did come out of Edom. Physically, they were descendant of Edom. And you may recall that Edom and Ishmael, their houses became intermingled. And the Arabs and the Roman Catholics have something in common then, don't they? Both of these belief systems seek to undo or supplant Isaac and then Jacob and the Jewish people. And there seems to be this thing resurfacing over and over and over again. And every generation it's going to come up again. Its ugly head is raised up. 
reared up against what God says in his word. You know what? We come back to say this. I said earlier that we, we choose not to believe the UN and AP and Reuters and CNN and the news media and even Time Warner. I said, we choose rather to believe what the Word of God says rather than popular opinion about things. And you know what I have to tell you? I also choose to believe what the Word of God says rather than popular opinion as well regarding who it is that is the son of promise and who it is that's the son of the slave woman. Some have said that the argument in Galatians 4 is not meant to be a parallel between... um, Old versus New Covenants, and I agree. It is not meant to be an argument contrasting Old versus New Covenants. Rather, it is meant to be a covenant contrasting those who come by faith or those who come by works, and I agree with that. But I would like to suggest there's another picture here as well. That it is a contrast between those who would seek to supplant by means of legalism and those who would seek to recognize the legitimacy of the real heir by who is there by faith. So we could say that perhaps in the Galatian letter there is something else meant as well, and that is the concept of the supplanter versus the natural born. And that that concept stretches and can be extended out to understand Groups around the world seek to have the real record rather than the first record. Okay? Having said that, let's talk about the binding itself. In the Talmud, we have a dialogue that takes place between God and Avraham. You know, looking at the wording, let's go to um, let's go to chapter. 22, take your son, your only one whom you love, Yitzchak. Why would God use this many layered description to say who he's talking about? Why didn't he just say, take Yitzchak and go and do this? The Talmud paints a picture for us of a, of a conversation that takes place. And the Talmud says, God says, take your son. Avraham, of course, says, I have two. God says, your only son. And Avraham says they are both only sons of their mothers. And God says, the one you love. And Avraham says, but I love both of them. And God says, Yitzchak. And so, though the text of the Bible does not record such a conversation, and the rabbis are not saying, this happened. They are giving us an understanding of why it is we find the many-layered approach so that the questions which may have existed in his own mind were being answered, though he never voiced them. You understand? So, in relationship here, we're talking about uh, the idea that God is answering any doubts or any hesitations. And in so doing, you and I can say he has clearly shown here in the written portion of the Torah that... It is not Ishmael being discussed here, but rather Yitzchak. Not the supplanter, but the real one, okay? All right. How old was Yitzchak? Well, the phrase in the text here 
does not refer to as a, he's not a child. He's referred to as a, as a na'ar. Where? In uh, 22.5 and 22.12, he's referred to as na'ar. What is a na'ar? And how does it relate to a different than, say, a yelad, a, a, a child? Yelad, child, right? Na'ar is a young man. Perhaps bachelor is a good way of understanding this. Someone who is eligible. Someone who's at a marrying age, but rather isn't married yet. Okay? A youth of marriageable age has been, it's been described. Okay? Jewish tradition calculates his age based upon the idea that the chapters which follow this one take place immediately. And we go from the death of Rebecca, immediately following this, even before they arrive back home, she dies, etc. The idea of that is the way the rabbis go and they calculate it out to be mid to late 30s. They think about 36 based upon the fact that they believe the next chapter is immediate. However, we don't necessarily have to have the immediacy of the chapter letting you know immediately what takes place. It's possible that it was two or three years before that. In any case, mid-30s is a safe assessment of his age. You know, when you think about it, the idea of a little child going with his father presents some problems for us. First of all, it would mean that Avraham Avinu, our father Abraham, was conducting some kind of an obscene ritual to somehow fool a little kid or perhaps do something that his own mind is not yet able to focus upon fully. Why is it people say that children cannot make decisions on their own? Oh, I know the prevalent idea in society is, no, kids can make decisions. Let them choose their own path. That's the parenting of today. It isn't the parenting of my day. It's not the parenting of their parents, was it? No, you tell a child yes and you tell a child no. And when they're old enough to make their own decisions, then you will be able to let that child do so because you'll have seen wisdom in their choices. But uh, that's not the way of today. But, you know, understanding something. If we have a little toddler being pulled along by his daddy's hand, he is going along without his permission. Number two, he has no concept of what it means when his daddy might say to him, um, God will provide a lamb here. He will, be, he will see a lamb appear or he will... You see my point? Third thing is he becomes a deceiver. Abraham would become a deceiver trying to get his son to go up and fool him into getting on the altar. Fourth, he would have become an outright liar because he would have said to the young men, you stay here, my son and I are going to go, and the two of us will return to you. He would have been lying if he believed that wasn't going to happen. There are several things that are problematic with the idea that this is a toddler. The rabbis, on the other hand, say, based upon the chronology of how old they believe him to be, Abraham would have been in his 130s, and Yitzchak would have been in the prime of his life, in his strength, and in his mind, completely and utterly confident as a young man of that age would be. Trained by the best, right? Well, the interesting thing is, as they go along the way, there is a tradition that there was an attempt to stop this thing from taking place. You say, 
Well, who would try to stop it? And what business is it out there to stop it? What meddling busybody is going to try to stop Avraham from doing this? Well, you and I know of one, the busybody by the name of the adversary, Hasatan, we would say, the adversary of God. The Hebrew uh, commentators uh, give him a name of Samael. And Samael is, uh, is this angel who's constantly opposing God. And so he comes along, and according to Jewish lore, he presents three temptations as they're walking along, going toward the land of Moriah to fulfill this. First time, he appears as an old man with lots of wisdom, and he falls into step with Avraham Avinu. Now, of course, why would he do so? Because after all, you got two people around the same age. They would have seen lots of life together. They would be able to look at each other and relate, right? So here's this person who appears to him as an aged man who says to him, you know, I know you mean well. And I, I know you believe what you're doing is right. But what if you didn't hear properly? Is it possible? Just, just, just bear with me now. Is it possible that you may have misheard? Can you honestly imagine the God you know telling you to do what you're doing? An attempt to use reason, an attempt to use the wisdom of years rather than the wisdom of the Spirit. And what is his goal? His goal is to introduce doubt in the way of, did God really say? You see my point here? Has God really said? Isn't this exactly what the serpent did in Gan Eden? Has God said, you shall eat of no tree in the garden? No, of course not. She corrects him. The introduction of doubt, hath God really said? And here indeed, according to the rabbis, temptation number one is done in the form of an old man walking along with a Avraham Avinu who says to him, Are you sure? Are you certain about this? Avraham, according to the legend, will not even consider the possibility that this guy could be correct and he steadfastly marches onward and will not. No. He is going to do something because God said it. He quotes God and moves on. He quotes God and moves on. Okay? Of course, then the next time this adversarial angel creates a temptation, he falls into step with the young man who is near his father. But he comes into step with him as a young man around his own age. And his warning to him is to use logic as well. He begins to cast doubt about Abraham himself. You know, the man is older. His mind isn't what it used to be. Can you understand that what he's about to do to you is murder? He's going to try to kill you. And according to the Jewish legend, Yitzchak was deeply and emotionally affected by this, such that it really caused him to say, you know what? I am afraid. 
And I do not know that I should want this, but nevertheless, not my will, but my Father's is going to be done. You understand that in the legend is the idea of Yitzchak being emotionally shaken to his core, yet being unswervingly committed to his father's wishes and his will. Hmm. And of course, then the enemy tries a third way. He creates an illusion. He deceives, as it were, the mind, the eyes, by, and perhaps even the, the physical touch, by creating a large body of water which would stop them from being able to go to Moria. And the legend goes on to say that they began to enter into this water, but the water began to rise. And the more they waded in, the higher the water got, and eventually it was up to their necks, and they were terrified, thinking they might drown. But then... Avraham declares, I know this location. I know this place. And there has been no brook. There has been no water here. I know this is not true. Now, surely, he goes on to say, it is the adversary who does these things to us to draw us aside this day from the commands of God and Avraham then rebukes the adversary and says, we will go onward. Hashem rebuke you, Satan. Be gone from us, for we go by the command of God. And then, frightened at the rebuke of Avraham, what did he say? We go because God has said it, right? Frightened at his rebuke, Satan then vanishes and the place becomes completely dry again, a dry ground. Hmm. I just want to point that out because it is in this location as he is ascending to the place where the sacrifice is going to take place that another image comes to mind. Some of you have read of the Gospels and in so doing... As you look at some of the events and words which take place in there, you may have come across something which puzzled you or gave you a sense of unease. There was the statement made that now is my time, he said, to go up and I'm going to be killed. Not so, someone says to him. You will not. No, this will not happen to you. And what is the master's words? Get behind me, Satan. Now, what do we do with a statement like this? We go and we say, hmm, I wonder, was Shimon Kepha possessed by the devil? Was he speaking the mouthpiece, the words of the, the adversary? Perhaps the latter is true. Certainly there was going to be dissent voiced for the very fulfillment or 
the fruition of this picture we're reading about here in the Akedah. That is, the Akedah was to be a foretelling or a shadow which was to come, of, of that shadow which was, the shadow rather, of that which was the reality coming later in life, later in the years, in the same location, of course. And it is true that in both cases of Rakam and the legend rebukes the adversary and says, we're going to go and do this. It is by the command of Hashem I do this. I would suggest to you, because that legend was very well known in the days of the Second Temple period, that the entire purpose of saying it the way he said it was to create a parallel. Yeshua declaring his intent to go up to become the sacrifice in the same place Yitzchak would be earlier. To be bound and to be killed. Yeshua declaring his intention to do this, having someone who appears well-meaning and is your friend and everything else, and, oh, no, not you. Unaware he's being manipulated. Unaware that he's voicing not God's ideas, but rather the ideas of the adversary. No, you shall not do this. What are you, nuts? You shouldn't go up and do this. Get behind me, Satan. Why would he say such a thing? Wasn't it the greatest of insults to Shimon Kifa to say, you are Satan? Or perhaps it was an allusion to this very, pro, this very uh, legend that he himself was drawing the parallel of, I am going to go up as Yitzchak went up willingly, so will I. Hmm. How willing was he? Well, according to the Talmud and the Midrash, there was clearly an understanding that Yitzchak was willing to do this thing. That he was not going up there as a deceived little boy, but rather that it was explained to him. As a matter of fact, the way it is worded in the explanation is that, hey, when he asks where is the sacrifice, he's told God will provide either a ram or you. You say, I don't remember that in the Bible. No, it isn't there. But the concept that Isaac knew is unquestionably there. Why would he ask then, why would he need to be bound to the wood? Why would he need this? Well, according to Jewish legend, according to the rabbis of old, he needed to be bound because he himself knew his own heart. And he knew that fear resided there. He was willing to go, he was resolved to go, he wished to go, yet he knew his own heart might indeed cause him to flinch or turn away from the knife at the last moment and therefore ask his father to bind him. Submitted to the binding of his father. Certainly we know. However, he did say to the young men, the two of us will go away, we will worship, we will return to you. Okay? How do we know that Abraham believed he would come back and he wasn't just lying to these two guys? Well, first of all, there's no reason to lie. In that day and age, Abraham's word was law. He had the equivalency of a king in his own household. What he said went. He could issue death commands. He could cause people to be put to death within his own house. And it would never have been questioned. But I believe... 
what it says in the book of Hebrews. In the 19th verse of the 11th chapter, it refers to he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. And therefore, it answers the question that he would make the statement with all truthfulness to the two young men. Hmm. We're trying to create the parallel of, of the fact that Yitzchak is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. And it goes on from here. Believe me, there's more. In the Midrash, it says in Bereshit Rabbah 56.3 that Yitzchak carried his wood. In fact, if you look, it says that Avraham placed the wood upon Yitzchak's shoulders so that he would carry his own wood up this hill to the place of his own execution. And the Midrash doesn't leave it there. It says that he is likened unto one who carries on his own shoulders the stake upon which he will be executed. And Yitzchak carried that wood in this manner. So the rabbis believed that Yitzchak carried the wood up the hill like one who would go and carry his own execution stake up the hill. Isn't this an interesting idea? And one would have to ask yourself, that you'd have to ask the question, if you lived in the second temple period and you were aware that walking up this hill is one who has had it placed upon him, his own shoulders, the execution stake, and then is going to be bound to it in the same way that Yitzchak was bound to his... Hmm. In Bereshit's Rabbat says, Avraham said, God will provide himself for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son, and if not, you are for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went on together, one to slaughter, one to be slaughtered. Together. The two of them went on together. Verse 8. Do you ever think about that word together? You know, it doesn't mean that they walked side by side. The word is actually yachdav. What does it mean? In complete harmony. In unity, they walked on together. They were walking for three days together, side by side, near one another, within the same group. But here, after speaking these words, they walked on together, yachdav, in unity. Do you know what it says this? Father, son, father, son, father, son. The two of them walked on together. In other words, there's this idea that there are two people, two people, two people, and then after the question is asked, they walk together in Yachtav. The difference is a contrast which bears understanding. Hmm. You notice that in some translations the word provide is used here. Other translations use the word see. And that's because yir'eh has been translated both ways, to provide or to see. And that's why as we were reading our passage, it refers to God will see himself or seek out for himself a lamb, as the way we read it in our art scroll edition of the Chumash. However, other translations will render this, he will provide. And so later on, when he names the place Hashem Yireh, it's on the mountain Hashem will what? Some translations say provide. Or on the mountain Hashem will be seen. Why? Because it has been rendered both ways. Of course, 
Why does it say God will see? One opinion says this, because Hashem sees the blood, listen to this, of Yitzchak, his wrath turns away. You say, wrath? Where did this wrath come in? Well, let's not forget that there has been something which has existed since the garden on this earth. And it is the constant presence of sin on this earth which has earned the wrath of God. And so when the rabbis begin speaking of wrath being turned away because God sees the blood of Isaac, there's something that we must take note of here. Listen to this. Why does it say God will see? Hashem answers, I see the blood of the Akedah of Isaac, the binding of Isaac, as it is said in Hashem, excuse me, in Avraham called the name of that place Hashem Yireh. And elsewhere it says, and as he was about to destroy, Hashem saw and changed his mind. First Chronicles 21:15. And what did he see? He saw the blood of the binding, the Akedah. As it is said, God will see for himself the lamb. Hmm. This kind of idea here means that if Isaac was to die, that that would have been enough to turn away God's wrath and the judgment of God upon mankind would be stayed because Isaac's death would have been sufficient for that. But there's problems with this idea. First of all, the problem is, number one, we know from the biblical record that Yitzchak did not die, that he was in fact taken off of the altar and that there was a lamb put upon the, a ram put upon the altar in his place. But the rabbis say even that is problematic in understanding, and we'll get to exactly why in a moment here. Another idea here we must recognize is that when this took place, according to the rabbis, was Passover. When the sacrifice took place was Passover. It was, it was on the 14th of Nisan when, in fact, all this took place on that altar up there on, on uh, Moriah. We also know that God stopped the process. Why? How? Avrochem, Avrochem, he says, here I am. Don't stretch out your hand against the lad. Na'ar. Okay? And do nothing to him, for I know now you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. The Midrash speaks of Isaac a little differently. You ready for this? The Midrash says Isaac died. It speaks of as soon as Avraham's knife comes to Yitzchak's neck, his neck, his soul departs, and he did die literally. But when the angel of Hashem calls out and says to Avraham, stop your hand, Isaac's soul was returned to his body and he was raised from the dead. That's the first thing. But still we have a problem when we refer to the fact that the blood of Yitzchak or the ashes of Yitzchak had some kind of merit or atoning grace for us. Because it does go on to refer to the blood of Yitzchak and the ashes of Yitzchak. Hmm. Let's read this. When the sword touched Yitzchak's throat, his, his soul flew completely out of him. And when he let his voice be heard from between the Charavim, lay not your hand upon the lad. The lad's soul was returned to his body. And then his father untied him and Yitzchak arose understanding that in this way the dead would become back to life in the future, whereupon he began to recite 
Baruch Adonai, who raises the dead, who resurrects the dead. From Perkei Derebi Eliezer, 31. Um, if he actually dies, and he's actually a symbol for early, an early symbol, if you will, for resurrection, did he really die? Well, who knows? Probably not. Okay? However, it is important to realize that this tradition existed so people in the Second Temple period would have known this, would have understood it, and would have believed it. Notice the phrase that Yitzchak was taken off the altar and a ram was placed there in his stead. Listen to this. Avraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. I want you to understand something. This particular phrase, in his stead, has been used elsewhere in the Bible, but not meaning to replace, but rather afterwards. Where? In 2 Kings 15, verse 7, for example, it says, And Yotam his son reigned in his stead. What does it mean? That following his reign, Yotam then reigned. Correct? And so in the same way, the rabbis have this idea. Rabbi Yudan said in Rabbi Banai's name, he prayed to him, Sovereign of the universe, look upon the blood of this ram as though it were the blood of my son Yitzchak, even as we've learned when a man declares, this animal be instead of this one in exchange for that or as a substitute, it is then a valid exchange. Rabbi Pinchas said in Rabbi Banai's name, he prayed, Sovereign of the universe, regarded as though I had sacrificed my son Isaac first and then this ram in the stead of him afterwards. Meaning, the same way it's meant in 2 Kings chapter 15, verse 7. Huh. Not as a substitute, the footnote says here, but as his successor, so that Abraham too prayed the ram might be regarded as additional to Yitzchak. And you say to yourself, I don't understand this. Why would there be this idea that both were offered up? Why does this even exist in Jewish lore? I would like to suggest it reminds us of another sacrifice, singular, which is comprised of two parts. On Yom Kippur, there are two animals brought as a single sacrifice. God refers to both as a single sacrifice. And if they are both not treated according to the instructions of Hashem, if only one of them is treated is only one is killed and one is released. And the, or only one is released and not the other one killed. The sacrifice has not taken place. And so in the Yom Kippur ceremony, we see an image of both death and life. Yitzchak got, a, got up off the altar and walked away. But it is demonstrated from the rabbi's thinking that indeed he died and his body was destroyed. His body was turned to ash. But then out of the ashes, he is seen to come forward and to live again. So they believe in two ways that Yitzchak both died when the knife touched him and then immediately his soul came back into him. Another area then of the Jewish legendary ideas is that he died, he was put to the torch, he was turned into ash, and from the ash he emerged again. Ash, by the way, is the only form in which a human body never again decomposes. Ash does not decompose because it is in its, you might say, its most purified state. That is not a commercial, by the way, for being cremated after death. What we're talking about here is simply a statement of fact. Nothing can decompose 
when it is already ash. And therefore, you have a body, in a sense, the form of Isaac was rendered incorruptible, and from that incorruptible body came the new life. And Yitzchak got up and walked again, according to, again, some. Hmm. The shofar blown at Mount Sinai when the Torah was given came from the ram which had been sacrificed in the place of Yitzchak. The left horn was blown for a shofar at Mount Sinai and its right horn be blown to herald the coming of Mashiach. The right horn was larger than the left and thus concerning the days of Mashiach it is written on that day a great shofar will be blown. The rabbis, I've taught you in previous years that when Avraham looked in the achare, the achar, Right? meaning the later time. And, and you've heard me refer to this. And even in the way we read it in our Parsha today, it says, and he looked and afterwards saw, right? Well, there's more to this than we have previously even taught because in the Midrash, we find a reaffirmation of the idea. Avraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, behind him, Achar, a ram. It goes on to say this. What does Achar mean? Said Rabbi Yudan, after all that had happened, Israel still fall into the clutches of sin and in consequent become the victims of persecution. He's referring to Egypt. Yet they will be ultimately redeemed by the ram's horn, the one from Sinai, remember that? As it says, and Hashem God will blow the horn, Zechariah 9:14. And Rabbi Yudan ben Shimon interpreted, at the end of, all, of after all generations, Israel will fall into the clutches of sin and be the victims of persecution. Yet eventually they will be redeemed by the ram's horn. As it said, the Lord God will blow the horn, etc. Rabbi Hanina ben, uh, ben Rabbi Yitzchak said, Throughout the year, Israel is in sin's clutches and led astray by their troubles. But on every new year, they take the shofar and blow on it. And eventually they will be redeemed by the ram's horn, as it says, and Hashem God will blow the horn. In other words, there was an understanding that the ahare of the horn which was blown at Mount Sinai was in partially, partially fulfilling the idea that while Israel was in its wallowing within its slavery, as it were, God was preparing its redemption. And the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt was the, the uh, lamb that was killed whose blood was put upon the doorposts of the houses by faith. Not because of the merits of Israel, but because the fullness of time, the Redeemer came and he offers up this particular lamb. It had to be without blemish. It had to be willing, as you know. His blood had to be applied by faith. And everyone who has put the blood upon the doorposts of their houses, whether they're Egyptian or Israeli, they were saved. As such, those people did leave Egypt. They now are given a new identity of no longer slaves, but free people. No longer the bond servant, but now the free one. And how do they become this? By faith. Keep that in mind as you're looking at Galatians 4 again. But remember one other aspect here. The ram's horn which blew at Mount Sinai, which we know from the Torah, happened. And it became louder and louder and louder. And the concept of this, this ram's horn, the rabbis say it was the ram's horn from Yitzchak's sacrifice. And they say, of course, that the... Um, Ahare mentioned here was Avraham being able to see the Hare of the ram, that which would eventually call people together at Mount Sinai and give them the Torah. But it's also indicative of the end of days, the other horn, which is going to, in the end of days, call people together as well. So all I'm pointing out here is that the rabbis also looking at the word Achar speak of it as referring to a latter time. You and I have perhaps another idea to this. 
Yeshua said these words, Avraham saw my day and rejoiced to see it. Hmm. Wow. I wish we had time to do more. I really do. I'll do one last aspect of this. In chapter 21, back when Avraham was interacting with Avi Melech, If you look at verse 25, our translation said, Then Avraham disputed with Avimelech. Do you know how this would be better rendered? He reproved him, he corrected him. This isn't an argument into which he got with Avimelech about, I'm going to dispute you over whose well this is. There is no, in fact, argument that goes on there. If you think about it, what does Avimelech do once Avraham makes the statement about the well? He begins making excuses for why he didn't know. But there is no, oh, prove it to me. There is no, oh, no, 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 my servants dug this well, not yours. There is no argument that needs proving here. So the concept of a rebuke from Avram, Avraham, excuse me, is clearly here in the text. And I want to read to you from what the Midrash says on this as well. Avraham reproved Avimelech. Rabbi Yosef and Rabbi Hanina said, reproof leads to love. How do we know this? Because it is written in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 8, Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Rebuke a fool and he will hate you. Such indeed, it goes on to say, is Rabbi Yose ben Hanina's view. For he said, love unaccompanied by reproof is not love at all. Reish Lachish said, reproof leads to peace. Hence it says, and Avraham reproved Avimelech. Such is his view, for he said, peace, and accompanied by reproof, is not peace at all. What was the outcome of this? Verse 32. Thus they entered into a covenant, and the covenant was a covenant of peace. Why? Because Avraham had the chutzpah to reprove Avimelech when Avimelech is standing there with his general beside him, which, by the way, is a veiled threat. Perhaps not even so veiled. You could see that there might be a contrast if you have a person who is a person of peace and he's accompanied by people of war, there seems to be a contrast. In the same way, if someone brings other peace lovers, there seems to be a synergy or a, a synonymous approach, you might say, to the way that people are, they see the same way. To bring your general, 
to a negotiation is a veiled threat. Would you agree with me? And yet, Avraham reproves him. He rebukes him. He sets the record straight and then graciously and generously gives a gift to him so that he will take that gift as a token. This was not a bribe. This was not a bribe to say, you, if you take this, I want you to uh, tell everybody this was really my well. No. There's no question as to whose well it was. Neither one is disputing the ownership of the well. And all he's doing is say, if you take these from me, it will be a token that you recognize the legitimacy of my claim. And he takes them. And Beersheba becomes the place of this covenant of peace between the king of the Plishtim and of Rechem and his descendants. It is sad to know that the friendship and peace which came because of this rebuke did not last, generationally speaking, and that when Avraham's descendants came out of Egypt, the Pelishtim were definitely there to create problems, perhaps not in the first generation, but in the latter ones, specifically in the days of Saul, Jonathan, David, and so on. They became real issue, but they were eventually dealt with. They were eventually wiped out. And so I want you to be aware of this. It is with these closing words I want to leave you. Love does not mean seeking to get along all the time. Love is pointing out difficult things and doing so without knowing what the future will hold, not knowing how they will react, Sometimes you say something because you love someone and it results in them doing what the opposite of what this... You're rebuking a fool and he will hate you. Remember that? Proverbs. Reprove a wise man, he will love you. A lot of times when you reprove someone or rebuke someone, how they respond will be an indicator. Not so you can rub their face in it, not saying, oh, you must be a fool then because you didn't respond well to my criticism but rather something that you can tuck away in your own mind and in your own heart and begin to pray for that individual so that you may see them go from being a fool to being someone who is wise, someone who will love you for being rebuked. I received a letter this week. It's robbed me of some sleep. It's from someone I haven't spoken to in... Six years, maybe? Five years, maybe? And even then, it was only over phone because of the great, enormous distance between us. And, and uh, before that, I hadn't talked to them or seen them in probably another five years. So this is a long, long-ago relationship. And the letter was filled with assumptions about who I am and what I believe. And the letter is filled with you must be like this and you must be like that. Why? Because, frankly, they're not even involved in my life. They don't know me. And the letter ended with, it's sad to know what's become of you. And of your ministry. And I thought to myself, oh, boy, 
my initial reaction is to say, you know what, this person doesn't have a clue. First of all, they have never been here, ever. Second, they've never met anybody, <laughs> they've never met any of you. Third, they don't have a clue about what it is I teach because they don't sit here, they don't listen. Third, I think I already said third. Next, <laughs> I mean, all of the things that keep coming up is, is to say, oh, they don't have a clue. But you know what? I'll tell you something. My father used to say to me often, he said, when people misunderstand you and they don't know everything about you and they make judgments, snap judgments, or they form conclusions and they don't know because they haven't taken the time to investigate, it doesn't matter. I don't, he's not saying just treat what they say as not mattering. He said it doesn't matter that they don't know. Because God knows, and yet God caused that person to be stirred up. And God caused that person to attack you. And I look at my dad sometimes and I say, but... Surely God is not telling people to attack someone who hasn't done something. And he said, want to bet? And he takes me to the Bible and he shows me, here's King David. Now, you may remember how King David got the throne, right? King David was a patient man. King David was promised in his youth that he would be the king. And he didn't get to be the king until he was 30 years old. Remember that? And he was, a, he, was a, he was a lad living in his father's house. Not an R. He was younger than that, you might say. He was, he was still a youth living in his father's house. According to his brothers, he shouldn't have even been coming to the war to check on things. Not even, you know, how dare you? He was that kind of youth. And yet it was going to be in his 30s when he came to be the king. How many opportunities were given to him to become the king before God's timing? Well, as you read his story you'll see that even his own men, well-meaning, said, look, you've been promised the throne. Here's King Saul. He's been coming after you in violation of the Torah. He wants your life, even though you've done nothing to him. Ask yourself a question. What had David done? Surely David had done something to incur Saul's wrath, right? No. He hadn't. He behaved in innocence. He had behaved properly and well. If, if David lived today, or lived during the days of Rabbi Shaul, Second Temple period, Rabbi Shaul might counsel him this way. Bear well under suffering, because indeed it's a privilege, he might say to him. Indeed, in Rabbi Shaul's own words, he said this, I am being persecuted... And indeed, I counted a privilege to be a partaker in the fellowship of Messiah's sufferings. What did that mean? Was Shaul being crucified? Was he being... No, you understand something. Partaking in the fellowship of Messiah's sufferings means to be brought before others unjustly, being persecuted unjustly. And David certainly was being persecuted unjustly. So I think his words would have been to King David what King David seems to know already. And that is to say, bear this well. It is indeed part of the process of what will make you a great leader. So you know David. 
You know, he never ascended to the throne before the time of God. Even when somebody came claiming to be the one who had put Saul to the sword, David said, you did so prematurely, how dare you? And he had the person, even though he was lying, he had him put to death because he claimed to be the killer of Saul. Please understand something. This kind of man knew that if you establish a precedent, that is, if you become the king of a nation by killing the former king of the nation, guess what's going to happen? You establish a precedent for others to follow. David never had to, in his old age, set up the secret service so Solomon wouldn't try to take his throne from him. But one of David's sons did try to take the throne from David, and he tried to do so when, number one, he wasn't the son of choice. Number two, he tried to do it while King David was still a very much an active and very proficient and great king. And he did so by deception, by manipulation of people. He would meet people by the gate as they came to present their case to the king, and he would say, my father does not have time for you, sadly. I would love to listen to what you have to say. And he would listen with eagerness and intentness, but his purpose was to deceive and to win the hearts of people by guile. And as he would listen to what they had to say, he would say things like, well, if I had the power to help you, I certainly would. If the kingdom were mine, you know I would be there for you. People, hearing this, slowly began to wish that Absalom was the king and wished that King David was simply out of the way. So much to the point where he was able to say over time, I need an army and I need to be able to come against, need to be able to come against my, my father in battle and I must be able to defend myself because he's going to try to stop this. And what do we want? We want real justice in Israel, not this blindness which has existed on the throne for some time. Oh, my father had his uses. He definitely was good for Israel in his time, but he's past it now, and it's time for him to move on. So let's install me as the king, Absalom would say. I'm paraphrasing, but you know the story in essence is exactly the way I'm describing it to you. Please understand something. David did not do wrong except for one thing. David never disciplined his children. He was permissive with them and he let them do whatever they wanted. Oh, I can say he did two things wrong. In one sense, it's because of what he did with Bathsheba that God caused this to come upon him. But please understand something. When Absalom came against the city of Jerusalem, David decided to save lives... He and his, a few of his wives and a few of his children and a few of his servants and his core bodyguard were going to get out of the city. He figured it would be better to leave the doors of the city open and have Absalom walk in the next day and take over the king or the, take over his palace and to do so peacefully without people needing to defend the, this, the walls of Jerusalem to the last man to save the lives of their king, he decided 
better for me to get out. So what did he do? At nighttime, he decided to leave. And he and a small band left the city. And they went across the Yarden. It's interesting. When they were leaving, a descendant of King Saul... Remember Saul, the guy who unjustly came after David, the one who was chasing David, seeking David's life when David had done no wrong to him. All David had done was seek to bless him. And all Saul could do in response to it was to try to kill David. And that attitude carried on and the suspicion that David was after Saul's throne carried on with Saul's descendants. Well, one of Saul's descendants saw David leaving the city and he began to pick up rocks and to hurl them at the king. Now, that's called attempted assassination, you understand, because rock throwing was a form of execution. But you have him throwing rocks at the king, and you have him cursing the king, cursing him. And one of King David's men said to David, let me go and kill this man. And King David said something very interesting. And this was the crux of what my father told me when I was a youth. He told me, King David responded to his servant, No, do not harm this man, because God has told him to curse me this day. I don't find a record, and neither will you, as you read the passage of God instructing this man to curse him. But you have to understand, David had a view. And David's view was that every rebuke came because God had permitted and ordained it, including this one. David was in a heart-searching mode. And that is something that my father taught me over and over as I grew. Listen for the rebuke of God, even in unjust criticism. Listen for something God may be saying to you through the mouth of another. And do not reject it, simply because it's incorrect. Keep your heart open to what God may be saying to you. So, I'm going to be contacting this individual in the coming week or two. I'm not sure exactly how and when. And I'm going to try to go and make the enormous trip that it's going to take. It's going to be some distance. And I'm going to try and go down there and meet him face to face and have a, an opportunity to, to listen to his hurts and to see why it is. And I want to do so with an attitude and a heart toward hearing what God may be saying through him to me. I don't have to admit to wrongdoing, you understand, and what he believes I do and teach and say. There's no admitting where you've done nothing wrong, but you still listen to what God may say to you through an individual like this. And that is what I want to encourage you. Avimelech was reproved and rebuked by Avraham, and it brought peace. First, I need to hear God's reproof in my life through this man's lips. And I hope that it will bring peace for me too. Certainly I hope that it will help me sleep better at night. So, 
I mention that because I want you to have always an attitude that says, listen to what God may be saying to you through others, even when it's unpleasant, and embrace it as possibly something that God wants to show you or to teach you or to, or to cause you to be more sensitive. Why? Because if you're suffering unfairly, if you're suffering unjustly, it will make you more sensitive to others' needs as well. Two, it's going to make you a better leader. It's going to make you a better person to handle. It'll make you careful not to overtly judge other people or jump on someone that you shouldn't. Trust me, to be a participator in the fellowship, fellowship of Messiah's suffering, to be a partaker in his sufferings, is not a bad thing. You know, the text tells us that those who sow in tears will reap in joy. There are many layers to understanding how that's possible and what it might mean. How it might be manifested in your life, only God knows, only you know. Your tears, your sorrows, your griefs will one day be exchanged for many, many happinesses, joy, eternal joy. Avinu Malkano, our Father and King, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your Torah. Thank you for the, the truth of your word. Thank you for showing us Mashiach once again. Teach us to be like him. Teach us to be the next generational fruition of being like our forefathers of Rochem, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Rabbeinu, Yeshua, our master. And may we also be filled with Hachnasas or Chim, filled with the understanding of how you wish us to be in this world, reaching out to others. We pray this all, B'Shem Yeshua, Mashiach, Amen. Adonai, V'yishmarecha Ya'er Adonai panavalecha V'chunecha Yisa Adonai panavalecha V'yasem lecha Shalom May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up His countenance and place it upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Thank you.